going to talk a little bit about worship, and we have simply titled this Grace and Glory in Worship, and we hope that this lesson ministers to everyone, but let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this evening to be able to spend a Tuesday in worship and in the study of the Word out of the depths of our heart, you know how much we love you and honor you and praise you. So, Lord, as we teach the scriptures tonight, I pray that you give us all ears to hear. Help me to speak clearly and let the Holy Spirit speak to all of our hearts in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Acts chapter 17 and beginning with... Verse 22, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an inscription or an altar with this inscription to the unknown God whom ye therefore ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now the, the, the first question I want to really deal with as we open up this teaching is to ask, uh, what do people see when they watch you worship God? If a visitor were to come into your fellowship and they were to take the time to observe your practice in worship. What would they see? Of course, visitors do this all the time. They go to any church and they come in and oftentimes they'll stand and first look around and see if there's anybody they recognize. And then when the service begins and people have to stand or sit, whatever they're doing, and people begin to sing songs, then of course they're looking around, paying attention to how people are worshiping God. Because as Paul shows us here in verse 23, you can learn a lot about people just from the manner in which they worship. Now, worship is different in different places, but people who worship the same God may do it differently. We know that Paul, in his journeys, he came in contact with different cultures. Let's not forget in Acts chapter 19, it says he was in Ephesus and he heard the people shouting, great is the goddess Diana. And they caused a riot because of their love and adoration for their God. So that's no different than what you see sometimes in the Middle East with the Muslims who cut their foreheads and the blood runs down and they run through the streets and they're screaming their love for Allah. But then also you remember in Acts chapter 13, Paul was on the island of Cyprus and it tells us about a sorcerer who tried to withstand Paul. Now, the sorcerer wasn't a worship of God, but he was a worshiper of the devil. And in his worship practice, he tried to stop anyone who proclaimed the truth of God. So all over the book of Acts, the apostle Paul comes into contact with different cultures. And, and through these teachings, we learn that 
in coming in contact with these folks, everybody has different habits and practices. So this is what occurred in chapter 14, where he was in Lystra. And the Bible says while he was there, the people saw him and Barnabas heal a man who was born lame. And then afterwards, they said the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And then they brought an ox with decorated ribbons around its neck and they were ready to sacrifice the ox. And Paul said, don't do that. We're men just like you. And so they called Barnabas Jupiter and called Paul Mercury because he was the speaker. Now, those were the Roman gods. If they would have been using the Greek gods, they would have called Barnabas Zeus and then called Paul Apollos because the Roman gods had equivalent with the Greek gods. But here's my point. You learn a lot about what people believe by their worship practices, the kinds of sacrifices that they make, the kinds of songs that they sing. Have you ever noticed that in uh, amongst Muslim cultures, they don't sing songs in worship like Christians do? Have you ever paid attention to how Hindus worship that there's not a lot of joy and excitement. There is a lot of animation, but there's not a lot of happiness when it comes to these worship practices. I think these things bring us to a greater understanding of the gods people worship. Paul was able to determine what kind of gods they worship by the way they worshiped. So that goes back to my question. What do people see when they see you worship? They believe you serve a living God, that you worship a living God, or do they believe we worship a dead God? Back in the 60s, there was a movement that was called the God is Dead movement. And you'll remember there were uh, liberal people or atheistic people all over the U.S. saying things like, God is dead. There is no God. And people wonder, how did they come to that conclusion? Well, I could tell you how they came to that conclusion. They went to a church or churches that are supposed to be the body of Christ. They stood in the midst of these people and they walked out, saw no life. And they said, we, we know God is dead because we saw his corpse. We've been amongst the people that are called the body of Christ and it's dead. And because of that, this is what has led to so many different beliefs where you don't have any kind of experiential nature or emotion in worship. People just do it in such a way that it's clinical and it's dead. Now, some people say, look, we're just orthodox. We're we're just straight and we just we just go right down the road and we don't get all off into all this other stuff. I just think, yes, yeah, straight like an icicle and just as cold. Yeah, just 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 as cold. So if if we ask the question, then what do people see when they see you worship? Then we, we realize that the ancient Greeks and Romans had beliefs that differ from our beliefs. because They worshiped gods that they believed had physical intercourse with humans. And out of those relationships came people that were half human and half gods. In in ancient Greek, the word was heroes. A person was a hero. If they had a, a mother or a father that was deity, and then the other parent was a human. So we use the word hero as somebody that's a rescuer, somebody that does something nice. 
And that is kind of the symbolism that was in ancient Greek, except there was a mixture. But then at the same time, the, the religious beliefs and practices where Paul is right here in this chapter in the book of Athens is is unique because in verse 23, he, he makes it very plain that these people are philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were people who were interested in human pleasure. If it feels good, do it. That's basically a good way to sum up what they believe. And then the Stoics, which are mentioned in the preceding verses, these were the individuals who believed what will be, will be. The gods have determined good or bad for your life. So they were fatalists. There's nothing you can do to change uh, the circumstances of your life, whether you have good fortune or bad fortune, some kind of misfortune, it's all going to come from the hands of God and there's nothing that you can do. So they had a belief that when we die, we'll all stand before the court of Minos and we'll give an account for our deeds. But before we get there, we need to offer these animals and hope that we can do enough that we will be uh, found pleasing in the eyes of these gods. Now, Paul had a totally different belief. And we know that because you can see in verse 18 of the same chapter, they said this man seems to be somebody who's bringing forth teachings of strange gods. And the word gods is the Greek word for demons, translated demons every other place. So they thought this man was literally teaching something that was heretical and definitely contrary to Greek and Roman custom. He would never teach us anything that's correct. And they wanted to hear more about it because he's telling them, look, Jesus came, died on the cross, and then he was raised again on the third day. Paul was the son of a Pharisee. Paul knew the name of his God. He knew to call him Jehovah or Yahweh. He understood that this God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and that we use that name, Jesus. But here he sees in verse 23 some people who are, are acknowledging they don't even know who they worship. That, that's amazing if you really think about that. To, to not know who it is that, that you're worshiping, but yet you're doing it anyhow. And to not know his name. So if you don't know his name and you don't know his characteristics, you don't know anything about his qualities, then how do you know what he wants or she wants? Or how do you know what pleases him or her or them? And Paul is saying this whole thing to me, it looks kind of silly. But in verse 23, he said, I beheld your devotions. Now, in a good Bible, in a good Bible where you have the word devotions, you'll have a marginal reference that says God's that all of you worship. That's in a good Bible, Sister Curry. In a good Bible, it'll it, it'll say that, that marginal reference. So, so the God's that you worship. So Paul understands that these Greeks and Romans have different God's that they are involved with. And looking at them, he knew they don't have a clue as to what they're doing. Now, have you ever thought that when you've gone different churches and places to worship? Have you ever stood in the midst of a group of people and wondered if anybody here even knew who they were singing about? If they even had a personal relationship with these folks, you know, as well as I do, anybody can sing Amazing Grace. Anybody can sing My Hope is Built Oh, nothing less. Anybody can sing just as I am without having any relationship with God. But there are people who pay attention. 
And they watch whether or not these folks look like they even have a clue. Because going back to the visitor, he's watching during the hymn singing or the worship service. If, if one of the grandfathers is doing this and looking at his watch, wondering how, many, how much longer this song is going to be. Or, or how somebody is looking at communion when it's time to take that. And they're looking at all these different practices here. And so when you come in contact with people who do not know God, it's difficult to get that over to them because they think they're doing something that pleases God. I wonder how offended these folks must have been when Paul said, I beheld your devotions. You folks are all superstitions and you're worshiping a God you don't even know. I'm sure they probably were not pleased to hear that. But being around people who have a relationship with God, that is encouraging. It's very encouraging. I had a gentleman one time, he had been raised Methodist, and he had visited uh, the Red Cloud Church one time, and he had never in his life seen men worship. And by worship, I mean he'd never seen men actively participate in the singing of a song, everything from the lifting of your hands to sing with a loud voice and have happiness and smiles on their face. And so he, he walked in. And of course, from where I am, I always see all the traffic coming back and forth and everything taking place there on the highways up and down the aisles. So I, I'm watching all of this and, and he's just kind of looking around like this and he, he just dumbfounded. What in the world is wrong with these people? Well, he, he told me months later that having been raised in a church, he'd never in his life ever seen that. Now, I, I don't know what, I just know after that service, it must have had an impact on him because he never ever went back to the Methodist church. I mean, he never even went back to visit unless somebody died or got married. He just never went back. He was surrounded by people who changed his life and they never even knew they were changing his life. All they were doing was worshiping God. So if you can turn people on to God by how you conduct yourself in a worship service, don't you think you can also turn people off? Yeah, that's that's the struggle that many uh, folks are having today, trying to figure out how to get young people in in fellowships. So Paul said he looked at the devotions and he could see there was something that wasn't good there. Now, for all of us, it's very important realize worship is certainly a practice we all should do. You don't have to have music to do it. You can just do it in your car. Do it in your lazy boy. Do it when you're at work. You can worship the Lord out of the depths of your heart because the scripture makes it very plain. Let everything that have breath praise the Lord. Yeah, that's that's important. Now, I am surprised at the number of pastors in America who do not like to worship God. I'll go minister in churches sometimes. And um, they'll keep me back there in the pastor's study during the whole praise and worship time. And you can hear the music and, you know, the church is having a good time. And, they, and they've got me back there just talking about everything that doesn't have anything to do with God. And, and I'll say something like, well, don't you think we ought to go on out there and join the folks in worship? Oh, no, they'll send a runner and they'll come and get me about five minutes before it's time for you to get up. And I'll introduce you. Then you'll get up and speak. And sure enough, we'll sit back there. And I mean, I'll just watch him as he eats his uh, chocolate covered strawberries or whatever they, they have. And we'll just sit back there. And then when it's time 
Then we'll rush out there. They'll give him the microphone. He'll say, "Okay, everybody shout praise the Lord as loud as you can. Then they'll shout praise the Lord and they're clapping and yelling and screaming. I'm thinking this guy is not even in a worshipful mood. And here I've got to get up in front of these people now. And Brother Darrell has come from Nebraska. He's going to teach the word now. Then I've got to get up and, and share. So there are a whole lot of pastors who don't worship God. And if they don't worship God, you think they're going to be able to inspire anybody else? No, no, because the people know that he's not a participant or she's not a participant. Okay, but at the same time, then some people who do lead praise and worship and are involved in worship, sometimes they don't want to hear the word. And that's just as important because when you're singing, you're typically singing the word anyhow. And I recall one occasion where a preacher was saying that he had to speak in a series of meetings in an auditorium one time. They had one of these beautiful praise bands and said the praise band was leading the folks in worship and said afterwards, the people in the praise band left the platform and then just walked straight down the side aisle and went into the foyer and never did sit in there for the service to hear what was preached. And the preacher, of course, he, he observed that. And so the second night, it happened again. They led the praise and worship, had everybody jumping and shouting, having a good time. Afterwards, they went straight out and went out to, into the foyer and just sat there doing what they did. But the third night, the preacher met them right there at the platform as they were exiting. He he didn't spend all day in prayer and fasting and talking to God. And he said to the leader of the group, he said, I just want you to know, I, I don't need you to prime the pump and get these people ready for me to preach. I come from that hotel to this facility ready to preach. Now, if you don't want to hear me preach, I don't want to hear you sing anymore. Oh, yeah. So you, they, they exited that platform. Where do you think they sat? Right there on the front row and never, ever left. So sometimes the worshipers aren't interested in the, the word or the people leading that. But church people in particular, we, we have to understand that the flesh, the flesh likes a, a nice beat. The flesh likes a whole lot of music. But the one thing flesh doesn't like, the carnal mind doesn't like to do, it doesn't like to pray. So you can announce that you're going to have a, a great praise and worship band or a good song leader or singer that's going to come and do a concert in the church, and the line will probably stretch three miles with headlights in every direction for people to come. But if you get up in the middle of that concert and you say, folks, I want everybody to know tomorrow night there's going to be a prayer meeting and nobody's going to be here but us and Jesus, you'll find out the next night you'll be one of the loneliest people on planet Earth. Because that carnal mind is not interested in spending time with the Father. So that's how people are in church. People who don't have a genuine relationship with God. They can't wait to get out. They're not interested in hearing the Bible. They're not interested in worshiping God. The only interest they have is how can I feed this flesh and appease it? Now notice what Paul said in Acts chapter 17, verse 23 again. He said, I saw your devotions. Then he said, I saw the altar. An altar represents death. You know that. You have to have a sacrifice, then you have to have fire. So something has to lose its life. Even in, in, in pagan beliefs and religions, you had sacrifices in ancient, ancient times. And so the, 
The image, of course, is the same with Christ. That's what Calvary is about. Jesus' life was sacrificed, but here were people that didn't know God the Father, didn't know God the Son, didn't know God the Holy Spirit, but they still had an altar, and then the inscription tells it all, to the unknown God. This goes on every day around the world. People have no relationship with God, do not know who he is, yet they worship something. They think they're worshiping someone. The Hindus have over a million gods. If I would ask you to name 10, I don't think you probably could. I couldn't name probably more than three or four. But if you have a million gods, let's just say if you have a hundred, okay, like the Greeks and Romans had, Poseidon who was running the water, okay, and all of these different people. But if if you have a hundred gods, that means you have to know what these 100 gods like and dislike. Then you have to develop your own cult in your own liturgy, in order to appease these gods if you think the gods are unhappy with you. But when you have an unknown God, I guess about all you can do is offer up some sacrifices and hope that's enough to to please them. But we see this all around the world. Uh, People who worship trees, people who worship rocks, the gods of the mountains, You can read in the Old Testament prophets and see where the Lord was displeased with the people who worshiped the gods. They thought the sun, the moon and the stars were gods. Ezekiel was able to see in visions as the Lord took him into the temple and saw the different priests that were sitting in God's temple, worshiping the celestial stars. God was totally displeased with that. Bible is full of it. Read about ancient Egypt in the book of Genesis. Look at the gods that they worship, the Babylonians, the Philistines, Dagon, the Philistine God, all kind of gods that people worship. But here we have an unknown God that they have no relationship with. Now look at verse 24 of Acts 17. It says, God who made the world and all things in it, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So God is not interested in a building right now on this side of Calvary that's made with hands. He lives in us now. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, you are not your own. You've been redeemed. Here's where the grace comes in, in the title, Grace and Glory and Worship. If I understand that this body is a temple and I recognize that I've been redeemed and purchased by that shed blood of his, then I also know this body belongs to him and I am a debtor to him. So because of his grace, I'm saved and I worship him happily and I worship him joyfully because he has taken the time to save me. These folks are offering sacrifices and they don't know anything about grace. They don't even know anything about redemption. They're not even sure if their unknown God is accepting of their worship or of their sacrifice. But you know that God is accepting of you because the scripture says that you ought to offer yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And the Bible says that we should offer to him sacrifices of praise. We worship God even when we don't feel like worshiping God. We praise God because he is worthy. I don't think a genuine Christian really has to be told to worship God. I think it's natural. I really do. I think, I think a person that's born again, it's just in them to know that I am grateful to this God who has rolled away the reproach of my sin 
and has washed me on the inside and made me feel clean. There's something in a believer that wants to tell God, I'm thankful and I love you. Well, if you've ever seen somebody who is uh, planting trees in their yard, you know, them little small starter trees they put out there they want to use to break, break up the wind patterns just coming through there. Well, that, that all starts from a seed. Somebody's got to get it going and growing. Then when it gets to a certain place, they plant it in their yard. And, of course, then we have a cold day like today, and it gets windy. Then you go out there and you look and you wonder, oh, my goodness, how in the world is that, that tree going to make it? I mean, it's growing. The root structure is going down into the earth. And then that 65, 75-mile-per-hour Nebraska wind is hitting it, and it looks like the tree is laying down on the ground. Then the next Sunday day comes, it stands right back up. It's right back there. Nothing happening at all. But the whole time, that wind is stretching that bark. It's becoming pliable. It's learning to endure. All of that's taking place inside of that, that tree. But as the tree continues to grow, just like all vegetation, the, the petals and the leaves and the branches reach up towards the light. Reach up towards the sun. No one has to teach the tree to have branches that do like that. They just, they go out just like that automatically. There's no difficulty at all. You might have one that gets broken and you might tie a little string or rope around it, but eventually when the thing heals up, it's going to be right back where it is. And if you go to a riverbed and see some volunteer growth, you'll see it sometimes coming out of the riverbed sideways, but eventually that thing goes up just like that. It's stretching forth, reaching towards the sun. It's all a product of the seed. It doesn't have to be taught to do that. So the scripture says that all of us are born of incorruptible seed. In the Old Testament, God said to Israel, lift your hands, O Israel, and worship me. He said to Israel, clap your hands and worship me. It says in the Old Testament, we lift our heart with our hands. So the, the new, newly born believer that loves the Lord, there's nothing strange for a Christian in the worship of his or her God to lift their hand or lift their hands to the Lord. Nothing difficult at all. At all. The, the, only, the only time that becomes difficult is when a person is taught, we don't do that here. See? It's all in the seed. It's natural. People just... They get to singing a song that really gets them going. And before you know it, they just got that hand up and praising the Lord and blessing his name. But there are a few fellowships you go into and people pull you aside and say, now, hold on now. You, you do need to know that we don't do that here. Well, I don't care whether you do it here or not. I'm in the kingdom of God and this is what I do. Even if you don't do it at your church. I've been, I don't know how many ecumenical meetings in, in churches where I know they, they look upon that in a bad way, but get to singing a song that I like. My hand goes right up. Praise the Lord! And there'll be people just looking at me. Say, look on. I'll look at you back. <laughs> Doesn't make a difference. See, the, the bottom line is, I'm there to worship God. I'm not there to worship them. And as long as he is, is acceptable in my sight and I'm acceptable in his, then that's all that matters. So the person who wants you to slow down and be as clinically dead as they are, you don't have to do that. No. And if you do that, I can promise you one thing. You're going to run a whole lot of people away from wanting to get to know God. There's no doubt at all. And if you don't, and if you don't believe me, 
All we have to do is, is just take a, take a Sunday and, and we'll just say, you know what? For six weeks, we're just going to shut down on Sunday. Just for six weeks. And we want everybody to go visit another church on a Sunday just to see what it's like. And I guarantee you walk into places and rather than seeing a garden of praise with people glorifying God, you'll see people that would rather have a root canal than stand there and have to sing songs. Yeah. Doesn't have to be that way. But when a heart is inflamed with a passion for God, then people want to worship God. And I hope that your worship and adoration of the king will always be enriched that way, too. You know, there used to be a time when people knew there's a difference between full gospel folks and people who weren't full gospel. Now, the Nazarenes and the Wesleyan folks of the holiness traditions of the 19th century, they always were people that kind of got with it. You probably heard in, in ancient times about the shouting Methodists. They're dead now. But, but they, at one time, there were some shouting Methodists, and they talk about camp meetings and have a wonderful time and praise the Lord. But, I mean, it's, it's gotten to where now, I mean, some full gospel churches like Lutheran churches and Presbyterian churches and Episcopalian churches, but the music was always different, you see. It was always something that captivated people because people sang like they really loved God and knew God. That's what I'm getting at, see, the music. Okay, so if, if we then now go over to 1 Samuel and look at chapter 4, we'll look at this in a different way now, in a different way. So we, we have, we've told you that we can learn a lot about the gods people worship by their worship practice. If, if you see people that are joyful in their worship, and if you've ever been in a, a situation where somebody took off and was running and praising God, then you know you're watching people who honestly believe that their God is a happy God. And likes people to rejoice. When you see people who are not like that, they tend to believe that God is much more severe and sober and doesn't like any kind of emotion manifested in the worship. I don't think that's correct, but nevertheless, that is what you find. Everybody touched by Jesus in the gospel seemed to me like they started yelling and screaming and shouting and dancing and praising, praising the Lord, even in the book of Acts. And when I look in the book of Revelation, except for about a 30 minute period where there's silence, everybody up there is making noise and shouting around the throne and praising God. So if you don't like noise, don't go to heaven. There's going to be a lot of it there. And, and there's going to be people making a whole lot of noise on on the other side. So you can learn a lot just from watching people. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. All right. So in First Samuel four, notice then the children of Israel have been at war with the Philistines, and according to verse number two, they took a beating and lost about four thousand people. So somebody has the bright idea and they say, let's bring the ark of God to help us in this battle. So that's verses three and four. And so they say, OK, yes, let's get the ark. If we get the ark here, the 
power of God is going to be with us because the ark was a symbol of the presence of God and the power of God, and they wanted it there. So they sent a runner all the way back to the tabernacle where in Shiloh where Eli was the high priest. And he got to Eli, and he said, look, Eli, we just got thoroughly routed by the Philistines. And the soldiers and everybody's calling for the ark because if we don't get God over there in our presence, we don't think we can win. So Eli, he was a little bit cautious about sending the ark, but he, he nevertheless, he told his two sons, he said, look, carry the ark on over there. And that's what they did. Took the ark and his two boys, they get they. They're going with the ark and whoever else is helping them. And the closer they got, then the children of Israel, they started getting excited. Then all the adrenaline is flowing through their body. And a great shout went up in the camp and everybody's making noise. You know, can't nobody shout like the Israelites, folks. I mean, they they were having a wonderful time. So the ark arrived in verses five through nine. And the Philistines heard all of this noise. They said, what in the world is going on? Over there in the Israelite camp, they said them people brought the ark and they are ready to fight. And the Philistines said, well, that ark and that God, that's who defeated the Egyptians. We're done for. How in the world are we going to win any kind of battle against them if they brought their God now? And so the Philistine general told his men, said, look, we we can't go down as fearful people. You got to fight like men. You got to be strong. And so they did. They went to battle. And this time, instead of defeating 4,000 of the Israelites, the Philistines beat the tar out of 30,000 of them. It just took a whole lot of lives. When it was all over, a runner had escaped, made it all the way back to Eli and said, Eli, we've had trouble. There's been a slaughter. We were the slaughtered ones. We lost thousands of people. Your two sons are now dead. And to top it off, the ark of God has been taken captive by the pagan Philistines and they've taken it back to their city. Eli was 98 years old when he heard the news. The scripture says he fell backwards. He was overweight. He fell backwards, broke his neck and died. That's what it said. When he heard the news that the ark had been Taken captive. Now, you can see that uh, verse 12, 13, 14, and 15, and 16 tell you what I just told you about Eli. So here is a man now that's dead, and they've got to go out of their way to communicate the deaths of Eli and his two sons to the wives. So the one wife was pregnant, and when she heard she lost her husband, her brother-in-law, her father-in-law is now dead, and the ark of God was taken captive. She went into labor. It was too much. She went into labor. And after she went into labor and gave birth, they tried to give her the baby. And the Bible says she wouldn't even regard the child. She just turned her head. She was so broken. She lost everything. The men in her life that were important, now God essentially has been taken captive because they don't have the ark. And she named the child Ichabod. And Ichabod is a Hebrew phrase that if you say it in a question-like way, it means where is the glory? But if you just are making a statement, it means there is no glory. Because the first part, Ech, 
can mean where, and it can also mean there is none or there is no. So the issue for the, the wife of the priest was the absence of God's glory now that the ark was taken captive. Now think about that. When, when you go into worship services and people are extremely unhappy and don't look like they're paying attention or don't even care, they resemble the kind of people whose ark has been taken captive. It's like, where in the world is God? And, and some people, if life has been bad enough to them and have dealt them what they think is an unfair hand and they've had enough trouble throughout the week where they come to church and they're not interested in worshiping God, then they definitely look like the ark has been taken captive. There's sadness and there's sorrow and they don't care. They don't care. But I want you to know God cares. God cares about you. God cares about me. This little boy who was named because of circumstances that eventually would pass had to spend the rest of his life reliving those circumstances every time he had to tell the story of how he got the name. Think about that. His mother named him Ichabod. So every time somebody said, how in the world did you get a name like that? Well, I was born during some difficult times. And have to go into detail. So what I'm trying to get over to you is that circumstances will pass. Bad days do not come to stay. They come to pass. The worst times of your life, they are not going to be with you forever. Better days are ahead. The scripture says the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter. That means that your prospects are as bright as the promises of God. And if you trust God and worship God and praise God, you can pass through any situation and you never have to have an Ichabod moment. Just keep worshiping God. Don't let the devil bring you into depression and disrepair. Don't have a mental breakdown because you're incapable of functioning. Allow God to move through you and ask him to give you clear sight and clear vision to see beyond the circumstances of your life. Because if you do, you'll find that that God will be with you uh, despite what's taking place. So we know God's with us when we pass through a valley. We know he's with us at the entrance of the valley. And we also know he's with us to bring us out of the valley. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of worshiper do you want to be when you're in the midst of people? Do you want to be a worshiper that is an example to visitors and other people? Or do you just want to blend in with the rest of the crowd and do whatever it is that they do. You know, anybody can do the chameleon thing, but the chameleon thing doesn't change lives. So be excited about God. Worship God with passion and fervency. And let's not be like the pagan Athenians who didn't know God at all, had no relationship with him. It doesn't matter where anybody puts you. They put you in an old pilgrim holiness church. Or if they put you in some kind of free Methodist church or somebody invites you to go to a Pentecostal church of God, wherever you go in the midst of those people, because you have a relationship with your God, you should be able to worship him out of the the purity of your heart. God's love for you has never, ever changed. So don't you change. 
unless you need to change and become a better worshiper. Yeah. In that regard, then we definitely all need to change. Amen? Praise God. Folks, I tell you, worship is a powerful thing, and I hope the Lord makes us all better worshipers. I would never want anybody to, to come into a Sunday service and walk out and say, these people here act like they don't even know who God is. I wouldn't even want anybody to come hear me teach and walk away saying, do you think that man is born again? <laughs> no, I wouldn't want that at all. But I, I, I've seen a lot of situations where those questions do arise. That if we put God first, you know, come let us worship God. Let us bow down as the scripture says. So practice that, you know, make that Make that your homework. Practice that when you're sitting there on the edge of the bed. Practice that when you're in the car. You can open up your mouth and tell God how much you love him. You don't have to worry about a song. I mean, if you're looking for somebody with a song, I'll play a harmonica in your back seat for you. It may not sound like much, but I'll play something that makes some noise, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But to be able to roll down the highways, say, Father, we love you, we honor you, we praise you. You've been so good to me, God. How wonderful you've been. Have my health. We have a vehicle. We have a home. We have an opportunity to share the gospel. You can't praise him enough. You can't thank him enough. Sometimes that's good for you just to be able to say that out loud. To know that you're saying to your soul, Oh, bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within me. That's all the therapy some people need. Yeah, that's it. That's all the therapy some people need, just to be able to worship God and glorify him. Let's pray. Father, we're happy and we're grateful that your word is true. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt you've called us to be worshipers. God, I pray that every time we have opportunity, that we'll be people that worship you out of a pure heart. You said through your word, God is the spirit and they that worship him must do it. Spirit and in truth. Let our worship be that way for you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen, amen, amen.